We are in Psalm 51. Uh, I saved this psalm in Psalm 32. For both of these psalms are written out of the experience of uh, chapter 11 that we've been considering, David's sin with Bathsheba and uh, the murder of her husband Uriah. It gives us much greater insight into what is going on in the life of David. Tonight we are going to be talking about the forgiveness of God uh, and uh, David's experiencing that forgiveness. We're going to be looking at basically the first half of Psalm 51. Next time we'll look at the second half of Psalm 51, which deals with repentance. The first deals with forgiveness. The second half deals with repentance. I'm grateful that we sang the song that we sang tonight. If you didn't recognize it, those words come directly from Psalm 51, but it's in the second half, so we'll be considering that next time together. And then after that, we'll look at Psalm 32. But tonight we look at Psalm 51, again, written out of David's experience of seeking forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. We know that from the psalm title. Uh, psalm 51, the title is, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this is taking place in exactly the time frame that we looked at this morning when Nathan had uh, said to David, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. So now we have a, a fuller developed what I said was a summary statement this morning when David said, I have sinned. But we're going to find out that David said a whole lot more than that. Uh, David's prayer, in essence, is given to us in Psalm 51. Uh, so we get, uh, as I say, a, a fuller, deeper, richer understanding of David's confession of sin. So the theme tonight is this evening we're going to consider the forgiveness one receives when one is already a child of God. Uh, when you sin after you are saved, you don't need to be saved again. I think many children wrestle with that, the whole idea that they accept the Lord as their Savior and then they sin and they wonder what, what, what I do with that and they keep accepting Jesus over and over again. Well, we don't have to continually be born again. We don't have to have uh, to accept Jesus as our Savior, but uh, there is this sense of a need of ongoing forgiveness that we experience, and this psalm speaks to that issue. So tonight I want to answer some basic questions from this psalm. They are, on what basis can I appeal to God to forgive me? What is forgiveness? What condition or conditions must I meet in order to be forgiven? And then lastly, how can forgiveness be mine? So we begin with the question, on what basis did David appeal to God to forgive him? The answer is David appealed to God's unfailing love and mercy. If you look at verse 1, it says, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So when David seeks God's forgiveness, he appeals to God's love and mercy, not to God's justice. The word mercy means pity. Have pity upon me, O God. Now that's striking if you remember that David found fault with the poor, with the rich man in his dealing with the poor man, and David said that he had no pity. He had no pity. Uh, he didn't take into account what his sin, what, uh, what he had done. Here, David appeals to God's uh, pity that God would have mercy upon him due to his abundant love. Pity, that is in keeping with God's loving kindness and is keeping with the abundance of his benevolent acts, unfailing love. B, David does not view himself as meriting forgiveness. That's very important. David could have, and I'd like to change this, that David could have mistakenly viewed himself as meritorious of, as meriting forgiveness. I want to be, make it clear that we're talking about mistakenly viewed himself of being meritorious of forgiveness. Hey, he had done and suffered much. As a lad, he had been extremely faithful. He had conquered Goliath with an unshakable faith in God. He endured the threats of Saul. And he was a man after God's own heart. 
said to us twice in the scriptures, the first being in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 4, God speaking to Samuel, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Uh, this is uh, God speaking to Samuel, and Samuel speaking these words to Saul. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Again, in Acts chapter 13, verse 32, it says, In the bull, David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So, so David was this person who was a man after God's own heart. But B, he does not appeal to any of those things in seeking God's forgiveness. And the reason would be for they would be of no avail, for he is guilty of these sins. His only hope is to be found in a merciful God. In a merciful God. That's very important for us to keep in mind. When we are seeking God's forgiveness, we come not seeking that forgiveness because of our faithfulness, because of our prayer life, because of our regular attendance, because of our reading the scriptures, because of our trying to do what's right or good, or whatever the case may be. We come not pleading any goodness before God. We come solely based on his mercy and his steadfast love, the fact that he has promised to love us forever, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See. And I think this is extremely important to recognize, nor does David view himself as being beyond hope of obtaining forgiveness despite what he has done. For this is written after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery, and ultimately after he committed murder. And as we think about sins, uh, those are pretty grievous sins. Uh, we, think, uh, we have a tendency, I think, to think of greater and lesser sins, I'm not so sure that's all that accurate, but nonetheless, we have a tendency to do that. And uh, it can't get much worse than what David had done, and yet he did not view himself beyond forgiveness. Um, if we understand that forgiveness is not based on merit, which I think we understand the first half, and that is that we don't plead our merit to God in order to gain forgiveness, but if we understand it completely, then we also get the other side, and that is, no matter what I've done, does not disqualify me from experiencing God's forgiveness. Because it's not based on merit. It's based on God's goodness. It's based on, of course, ultimately the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not beyond the pale of being forgiven. So application. We must guard against the thinking that God will forgive me because of the good that I have done. Likewise, we must guard against the thinking that God will never forgive me because of the evil that I have done. No one is ever worthy of being forgiven. God forgives us now, not out of his justice towards us, but rather out of his mercy. Out of his mercy. And I, I said that actually kind of carefully when I talked about his justice towards us. We really want to get complicated. We can talk about the fact that God is just and God holds Jesus Christ accountable and he paid the penalty for our sins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly God's justice is involved in our forgiveness. But it's not justice in the sense of us earning it. It's mercy as far as God is relating to us. We are receiving his mercy. We are receiving his mercy. Number two, question, what is forgiveness? What did David really want from God when he wanted forgiveness? Of what does forgiveness consist? What does it mean to be forgiven? What can we expect God to do when he forgives us? What, what does forgiveness actually look like? And uh, we are going to find that there are three pictures of forgiveness that are very helpful to us, A. The first picture is one of erasing a debt from a ledger book and speaks of the removal of a debt found in the words, blot out my transgressions. That's in Psalm 51, verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And now here's the forgiveness he's seeking. First, blot out my transgressions. Transgressions are a violation of God's law. There are a number of different words that are used in Psalm 51 to depict what sin is. 
This one is transgression. And transgression is literally overstepping the bounds. Uh, it's trespassing, if you will. It's going where you don't belong. Uh, most hunters have seen those signs, no trespassing. This is out of bounds. This is where you cannot go. Well, a transgression is to go where you're not allowed to go. It's to overstep the bounds, and it has to do with God's commands. It's breaking God's law. So David speaks here of violating God's commands. Certainly he did so. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. He certainly did that. Thou shalt not kill. He certainly did that. So he asked that his transgressions be blotted out. David is seen here as a debtor to the law of God. In not keeping the law, he has incurred a debt of punishment that needs to be paid. We often think about sin in that respect. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that we owe a debt because of our sin. The figure of blotting out is employed as one of an accountant's ledger book where the debt is entered and then canceled out. David wants his debt to be removed. Numbers 25 verse uh, 23 says, And then the priest shall write these curses in a book. So when one broke the law of God, the, uh, the priest was actually to write within a, a ledger book the curses that that person should receive for breaking the law. And it'd be like an accountant's ledger. Here, here, here's the debt that's owed. Here, here are the curses that should come upon an individual. And then it says, and he shall blot them out with bitter water. That, that they should be removed after they're written down. Then they should be blotted out as though they didn't exist, as though they were paid in full. It's a beautiful imagery in the Old Testament to talk about how sin's debt has been paid. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He pays the penalty for our, for our sin. And uh, you may think it's inappropriate for me to be talking about Jesus in the Old Testament and his sacrifice, but we're going to see when we get into the second half of of uh, Psalm 51, that, that David is very much aware. He's very much aware of the basis of his being forgiven. And uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. B, the second picture of forgiveness is that of washing filthy garments and speaks of the removal of moral corruption. So wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Now there's the, the second word that's used for sin. All these are synonyms, but they all have a different nuance. The word iniquity is the corruption of sense, of being dirty, the stain which sin brings. And this morning, uh, Lisa sang that beautiful uh, song that talked about the stain of sin being removed. It's like spot on a garment. It's, it's that sense of feeling dirty and needing to be cleansed from one sin. Washing, then, is the word used to, to tread or beat filthy garments. The third picture of forgiveness is that of a leper's cleansing and speaks of the removal of all stigma and separation due to sin. Cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51, verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is missing the mark or falling short of God's righteous standard. This is still a third and different word that's used in our text. The figure that is being used here is that sin is like leprosy. There are 15 different Hebrew words for the word cleanse. And the word cleanse used here is the one that is also used of a priest pronouncing a leper to be cured of his leprosy. That leper is said to be clean. Leviticus 13.34, And on the seventh day the priest shall examine the itch, and if the itch is not spread in the skin, and appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. 
The leper who was unclean had to be separated from others. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. Remember in the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah gets a picture of the holiness of God. He says, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. I am unfit to be in your presence. I don't deserve to have this intimate fellowship with you. One of the things that sin does is it, it, it brings a separation between our, ourselves and, and, and God. Not an eternal separation, but an uneasiness. Uh, we, we don't feel welcomed in his presence. And many times it, it's, more, it's more on our part than it is on, on God's part. But it's this, this self-incrimination. And so David wants this barrier to be removed when he prays and says, cleanse me from my sin. This word picture is used a lot in the Old Testament to talk about sin and this barrier that, that sin can create in this lack of fellowship with us, the way it, it creates a distance between ourselves and, and God. And we talk about drawing nearer to God. Well, sin has a tendency to, to drive us farther away from God, and we feel uncomfortable in his presence. Um, as uh, we, we think about this, um, there's that imagery. You know, when a, a leper had an active leprosy, it looked like a, a reddish uh, boil and sore. Uh, it would, it, his skin would turn, uh, turn red. And when a leper was healed, that red spot would actually turn white. And that was the way in which the priest would know that he was cleansed of his leprosy because it would be white. That's the imagery of, of, of Isaiah chapter 1. Though my sins be as scarlet, though they be red, they'll be like leprosy. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That God can make us clean, God can heal us, uh, God can make us white. And, and when we're healed, we're, we're welcomed into his presence. And we have fellowship with God and with his people. So this renewed fellowship is a large part of what is desired in confession. So conclusion, in seeking forgiveness of his sin, David wanted three things. First, to be absolved of the penalty of his sin. Two, to be free from the filth and moral corruption that results from sin. Uh, we, we talked about how sin grows, like leprosy would grow. Sin grows, and David had been unrepentant. Uh, David had continued on, and as we noted last week, got worse and worse and worse. Well, well David wanted that chain to break. David wanted that succeeding sinfulness to stop. And that's why when we get into the second half of Isaiah 50, uh, excuse me, Psalm 51, we read the words that we sang tonight, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Not just a change, but an actual transformation of heart. And we'll see why he needs that in just a, just a moment. But here's this desire for the filth 
of sin to be removed, this, this dirtiness, and so that once again, he can be right with God, but more than what he was before, created me a clean heart. Uh, start with something new. Uh, he, he, he wanted to be delivered from what he was. We'll see that when we get to uh, the next section here. But thirdly, to be free from the alienation from God and others that results from sin. I uh, can't tell you how many people that I have encountered that when they are unrepentant of their sin, they don't, they don't want to be in church. They feel incredibly uncomfortable. And even though people don't know what they have done, they know what they have done, and they feel like everybody's judging them. They feel like everybody's looking at them. They just feel like I don't belong here. Uh, that's what David wants to be removed, that stigma that's due to sin. So three, what condition did David meet in order to be forgiven? David confessed his sin. And uh, this is by far the largest section in the first half of Psalm 51. And there are actually seven aspects to David's confession of sin. So the condition of forgiveness is the confession of sin. To confess is literally to say the same thing about sin that God says. And confession includes seven things in this psalm. There, there are seven declarations that David makes about his sin in this psalm. First, confession includes the conviction of sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Literally, I know my transgressions and my sin is always in my sight. Here is a constant awareness of his sin and a sense of guilt. David knows that he has done wrong, and he can't get it out of his mind. We wonder what was going on in those first, those nine uh, months before David actually repents. And the answer is he was under conviction. He was under conviction. He, he didn't repent. He didn't confess it, but he had an acute awareness of his sinfulness. B, confession includes complete acceptance for the responsibility of sin. Found in the words, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And I have here, note the personal pronouns that David uses to take responsibility for his sin <coughs> Uh, for what he has done. Against you and you only, I sinned, and that what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. These are powerful personal pronouns. I sinned, my transgressions, my sin. So too, there's no rationalization here. David does not blame his circumstances. David doesn't say, Lord, forgive me, but, you know, I rose up and I was taking a nap and I walked on top of the roof and, and, I, and I never, ever thought that I was going to see that woman taking a bath. I, that, that wasn't in my heart. That's not what, what I was about. That's not what I was intending. David does not rationalize. David does not blame his circumstances. David does not blame his social conditions. Nor does David attempt to shift blame or to minimize his wrongdoing by blaming Bathsheba. And of course, she's completely innocent. But yet, people do those things. People rationalize, people justify the wrongdoing and want to blame shift and make other people angry. Um, excuse me, make other people responsible. So it's common for people to say, you made me angry. Well, nobody can make you angry. Anger is your response to what has taken place. Uh, you can respond differently than to respond in anger. Your circumstance doesn't dictate 
what your response is going to be. And we need to understand that when we sin, it's willful. It's a choice that we make. It's a terrible choice, but it's a choice. And so David does not blame shift. So here's a key factor in confession of sin, taking responsibility for the sinful act. Taking responsibility. Uh, Not blaming. David doesn't blame his wives. David doesn't blame whatever. C, confession includes the acknowledgement of the nature of sin. Sin is evil in God's sight. Verse 4, against you only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you remember... Those were the exact words of Nathan to David when he said, you are the man. That you have done this evil in God's sight. David picks up on those words and he acknowledges them. He he accepts what God says about his sin. And that is that it's evil. That it's evil. He doesn't seek to minimize what he has done. He doesn't seem to deflect. Uh, He doesn't justify and say, well, I didn't actually kill uh, Uriah, the Ammonites did. No, David arranged for Uriah's death. It was David's intention that he would die in battle. So two, God views the actions of David as evil, abhorrent, and so does David. But it's important to understand that that's not where David starts, but that's where David ends up. In the beginning, he doesn't view these things as evil, but he comes to understand them as evil. But he doesn't really confess until he gets to that place of of understanding what it is that, that he had done. So three, David does not minimize his sin by calling it a mistake, bad choice, a problem, a slip-up, or one of those things that just happened. D, confession includes the acknowledgement of the essence of sin. That is that sin is against God. Now verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And notice how that is stressed in the repetition. Against you. And now this incredible statement, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So number one, this is a rather striking statement in view of what David's sins were. David took and committed adultery with Bathsheba. David arranged the murder of Uriah. David involved Joab in the cover-up. David caused the death of innocent troops. Two, in the statement that he had sinned only against God, we have a great lesson in the nature of sin. Others may have been wronged, mistreated, taken advantage of, used, and terribly affected because of our sin. But in the strictest sense, it is only God who can be sinned against. For it is his law that is disobeyed, his holy character which has been violated. Hinted that a little this morning, and now I want to make that even more clear. You see, we can wrong others. We can hurt others. Our sin can have a terrible effect upon others. But in reality, when we sin, we sin against God. Two, it is God to whom we are ultimately accountable. To commit adultery is a violation of God's law. To murder is to break his commandment. It isn't just the effect that it has upon others, but it's against God. B, when we fail to see sin as a violation of God's law and offense primarily against him, we weaken our concept of sin. And I said this this morning and I want to repeat it. Here is in is the fallacy of thinking, as long as I don't hurt anyone else, there's nothing wrong with it. So too, as long as there are two consenting mature adults, it is all right. We live in a society that says my body is mine and I can do what I want with my body as long as I don't hurt somebody else. As long as there are two parties that are consenting, 
That's all that matters. Doesn't matter if it's male with male, doesn't matter if it's female with female. It does, all the things don't matter as long as, quote, nobody's getting hurt. That fails to understand that sin is against God. It's not just about hurting other people, which is terrible. We shouldn't want to hurt other people. We shouldn't hurt other people, but we sin against God. E, when we view sin as an offense against God and we are concerned with our relationship with God, we have a greater deterrent for sin. I think this is so important to understand. Let me say it again. When we view sin as an offense against God and we are concerned with our relationship to God, we have a greater deterrent for sin. There is no greater deterrent than this. And to give you the practical example, I turn to Genesis chapter 39, and it's the well-known story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And remember how uh, Potiphar's wife uh, tries to get uh, Joseph to commit a sexual act with her. We have Joseph's resistance. Joseph saying no, even though she's actually grabbing hold of him and wants to lie with him. So Genesis chapter 39, verse 7, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's aware that she's married. She is, he is aware that her husband has treated him fairly. He realizes that he's indebted to her husband. And he says, how can I do this wickedness and, but notice the shift, sin against God. That's the ultimate deterrent. It's not the kindness and goodness of Potiphar to him. It's that this is sin against God. And why I'm driving this home is because rarely is that said. Rarely is that said. And in our well-meaning desire to keep people from sinning, we give a thousand and one reasons. You know, for example, it's very common when talking to young people about having premarital sex. You know, why shouldn't you have premarital sex? You might get pregnant. Why shouldn't you have premarital sex? If you do get pregnant, that's going to create problems for you and, and uh, you know, your parents, and you're going to feel shame. Why shouldn't you have premarital sex? Well, you may have a disease. And then talk about STDs and sexually transmitted diseases and, and all these kind of things. Well, as people get older, as people mature, as people gain greater understanding, they say to themselves, I can take precaution. I can practice safe sex. I can have sex and not get pregnant. Now, you can't guarantee that, but people tell themselves that. I can have sex and, and not get diseases. Can't guarantee it, but you can minimize it. And you can begin to chip away at all those things. But the one thing you can never chip away at is it's sin. It's sin. Why shouldn't you have premarital sex? Why shouldn't you commit adultery? Why should you live a life of purity? Because to not do so is sin. And it's against God. That's why. That's why. And you can never grow, mature your way out of that understanding. 
It's against God. And that's what David says. E. Confession includes an acknowledgement of one's own rightful condemnation. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And now he says this, so that, knowing that, if you will, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You have said it is evil. I have sinned against you. You have pronounced judgment, and rightly so. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 12 that we looked at this morning, we saw that there are these consequences to David's sin. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in your sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your, your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, and now here are the things. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your, mouth, from your house. Jumping down to the next bold statement, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. Verse 13, And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Here, David says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, You are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Who can find fault with what you determine to do? David accepts the consequences of his sin. He accepts it. We're going to be in a really, really tough section when we deal with the death of David's child. And I know that's coming, and we will put that in the context of this, and it's too complicated to deal with in two minutes. We're going to spend a Sunday on it. But I just tell you, David accepts the judgment of God, for he is going to stand up at the end and worship. He worships God after the child dies. He accepts it. That's an important part of confession. Accepting the consequences. And not feel as though God has treated us unfairly or unjustly. Or others have treated us unfairly or unjustly. Confession accepts what God says. F, confession includes the acknowledgement of the source of one's sinfulness, which is our own sinful nature. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not a statement concerning the sinfulness of David's mother. This is not talking about that David is illegitimate or that his mother did anything wrong when uh, she conceived him. But rather, this is a statement that David was born with a, wind, with a sinful nature as we all are. This is not an excuse. This is beginning to look at the depths of his sin. David realizes that he is sinful to the core. For G... Confession includes an acknowledgement of the extent of one's sinfulness. It reaches to the very heart. Psalm 51, verse 6. Behold, you delight truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It was not just the act that was sinful. It was the lust and hatred that were sinful. He accepts it all.
You know, we can blame our, our sin on, on the society that we live in. We can blame our sin on the technology of our day. We can blame our sin on the fact that there are billboards that we don't want to see. We can blame the fact that, that you know, now there is pornography on the internet. We can, we can talk about all the things that are out there and blame our culture, blame TV, blame technology, blame everything under the sun, and the reality is the problem is in here. Those things don't have to affect us. We don't have to go down those roads. We don't have to respond in those ways. Jesus makes it very clear where sin comes from. It comes from the heart. And that's why David is going to pray in the second half of the psalm, create in me a clean heart, O God. So that I respond differently. David didn't have to respond the way he did when he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. He didn't have to go there. The problem was his heart. And David confessed that. David came to grips with that reality that he was sinful to the core. He's born with a sinful nature, as we all are. So it brings us to the fourth point. How is forgiveness appropriated? Forgiveness is appropriated by the application of the sin offering, verse 7. And uh, here I wish that uh, I was doing the whole psalm, but you can see I've already taken 55 minutes almost. Uh, so I've got to go quickly, but... Psalm 51, verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So purge, the word means to cleanse or purify by the means of a sin offering. And hyssop is a plant that grows virtually anywhere and everywhere in the area of Palestine. Hyssop was a plant that was used to apply the blood of the sacrifice to that which was to be cleansed or atoned for. In the, for example, hyssop was first used in connection with the application of the blood in, in connection with the Passover. Exodus 12, 21 and 22. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. It was the hyssop, it was the plant that was used to dip in and then apply to the doorposts and to the lintel. The hyssop was a plant that was used in the ceremonial cleansing of a leper. Leviticus 14.4, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed the two live birds and cedarwood and scarlet lord and hyssop. And hyssop. There were other things that could have been used. But it was hyssop that was used. That was the instrumentality of taking that blood and, and applying it. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in the earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and he shall let the living bird go into the open field. So note the significance of the imagery here. The shed blood of a dead bird is needed. A live bird is needed to represent the resurrection. We have the same thing on the Day of Atonement, where, where one of the animals is killed and the other one is set free to depict the death and resurrection of our Lord. And I'm going to unpack that in much greater detail in the second half of Psalm 51. For there David says that he does not offer a sacrifice, for God does not desire that. God desires a broken and contrite heart. David realized that the blood of goats and bulls could not take away sin. He got that. He knew that. He understood that it was going to take something else. He understood the Messiah. And he understood that what was required was a broken and contrite heart. It wasn't just going through the rituals. It was true confession. 
Three, the one who is to be cleansed experienced the benefits of both the dead bird and the live bird. This ultimately speaks of the cleansing that we receive through the application of Christ's shed blood and, and resurrection, uh, resurrection to us. And in other words, what we are simply saying when we're confessing our sin is may the blood of Christ cover me. We don't have to use those words. But that's the expectation. That's our hope. That's what we're basing it on. Apply to me the blood of Christ. That's what I need to be cleansed. That's what I need to be forgiven. That's what I need to be right with you. What are the benefits of being forgiven? First, we have a sense of joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. B, we're no longer under a state of conviction. Psalm 51, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Now these words, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That comes out of Psalm 32. Psalm 32 also written out of David's Experience And Psalm 32 starts off by saying, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Goes on to say, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So, so David depicts this time when it seemed like God's hand was, was just pressing down upon him day and night. He said his bones waxed old. He, he was feeling like an old man. He, he was under conviction. He was miserable. But he cried out finally for forgiveness. He cried out for God to forgive him. And he says, restore to me the joy and gladness. We're going to see in the second half of the psalm, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not restore my salvation, restore the joy of it. The joy of it. The sense of being acceptable to God. To once again delight in our service and our opportunity to pray to him. No longer feeling sense of guilt and separation, but, but joy. I'm free, I'm forgiven. My sins are washed away. No more reason for condemnation. No more reason for guilt. No more reason for feeling ashamed. It's gone. Christ bore it all. He bore not only my sin, he bore my shame. So there's this desire for, for joy. See, the debt of sin has been removed. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins. Don't look at them. Don't see them. Take them out of your sight. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He removes our sins as far as the east from the west. He says he forgets them. He remembers them no more. It's like they were never committed. It's like I never did the deed. It's gone. It's gone. What a wonderful forgiveness. What a complete forgiveness. And what a complete confession. But we have this wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess. And he cleanses. I encourage us.
confess our sins and rejoice in his forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great psalm and what it teaches us about confession. Lord, you know our hearts. They're deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and the question is asked, who can know them? Lord, we don't even know the sinfulness of our own hearts. But Lord, teach us. Teach us at least to the degree that we accept the responsibility for our sin, that we we quit blame-shifting. We quit blaming our society, our culture, our time, our day. Lord, our sin is our sin. And we acknowledge, oh God, that, that we don't stop sinning and that we can't stop sinning. We were conceived with a sinful nature. So we plead with David, create in us a clean heart. We thank you that we are given the opportunity time and time again to start over with a longing that this time, this time it will be different. And we long for that day when we are going to be in your presence, never to sin anymore. When it will be completely removed. When we will be like you, for we will see you as you are. So we ask in the meantime, show us more of yourself that we might understand more fully the dreadfulness of sin, the evilness of sin, that we would learn to hate sin, that we would not be attracted by sin. The word tells us about Job who eschewed evil. He hated it. Lord, you know how it entices us. You know how sometimes we wish we could do certain things and we're kept from them because of a thousand one reasons. But our heart would long to go there. We'd like to say and do certain things that we know that are not right. Lord, let us not be content with our actions. Strive with our hearts that we respond to you in the right way. Help us, O Lord. Draw us closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And we are dismissed.